Section 8 of Redburn, His First Voyage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Redburn, His First Voyage by Herman Melville. Chapters 33 through 37. Chapter 33 The Salt Drogers and German Immigrant Ships. Surrounded by its broad belt of masonry, each Liverpool dock is a walled town full of life and commotion, or rather, it is a small archipelago, an epitome of the world, where all the nations of Christendom and even those of heathendom are represented. For in itself, each ship is an island, a floating colony of the tribe to which it belongs. Here are brought together the remotest limits of the earth, and in the collective spars and timbers of these ships all the forests of the globe are represented, as in a grand parliament of masts. Canada and New Zealand send their pines, America her live oak, India her teak, Norway her spruce, and the right honorable mahogany, member for Honduras and Campeche, is seen at his post by the wheel. Here, under the beneficent sway of the genius of commerce, all climes and countries embrace, and yard-arm touches yard-arm in brotherly love. A Liverpool dock is a grand caravansary inn and hotel on the spacious and liberal plan of the Astor House. Here ships are lodged at a moderate charge, and payment is not demanded till the time of departure. Here they are comfortably housed and provided for, sheltered from all weathers and secured from all calamities. For I can hardly credit a story I have heard that sometimes in heavy gales ships lying in the very middle of the docks have lost their topgallant masts. Whatever the toils and hardships encountered on the voyage, whether they come from Iceland or the coast of New Guinea, here their sufferings are ended, and they take their ease in their watery inn. I know not how many hours I spent in gazing at the shipping in Prince's Dock, and speculating concerning their past voyages and future prospects in life. Some had just arrived from the most distant ports, worn, battered, and disabled. Others were all a taunt of spruce, gay and brilliant in readiness for sea. Every day the Highlander had some new neighbor. A black brig from Glasgow, with its crew of sober Scotch caps, and its staid, thrifty-looking skipper, would be replaced by a jovial French hermaphrodite, its forecastle echoing with songs, and its quarter-deck elastic from much dancing. On the other side, perhaps, a magnificent New York liner, huge as a seventy-four, and suggesting the idea of a Mivart's or Delmonico's afloat, would give way to a Sydney immigrant ship, receiving on board its live freight of shepherds from the Grampians ere long to be tending their flocks on the hills and downs of New Holland. I was particularly pleased and tickled with a multitude of little salt drogers rigged like sloops, and not much bigger than a pilot boat, but with broad bows painted black, and carrying red sails which looked as if they had been pickled and stained in a tan-yard. These little fellows were continually coming in with their cargoes for ships bound to America and lying five or six together alongside of those lofty Yankee hulls, resembled a parcel of red ants about the carcass of a black buffalo. When loaded, these comical little craft are about level with the water, 
and frequently when blowing fresh in the river i have seen them flying through the foam with nothing visible but the mast and sail and a man at the tiller their entire cargo being snugly secured under hatches it was diverting to observe the self-importance of the skipper of any of these diminutive vessels he would give himself all the airs of an admiral on a three-decker's poop and no doubt thought quite as much of himself and why not what could caesar want more though his craft was none of the largest it was subject to him and though his crew might only consist of himself yet if he governed it well he achieved a triumph which the moralists of all ages have set above the victories of alexander these craft have each a little cabin the prettiest charmingest most delightful little dog-hole in the world not much bigger than an old-fashioned alcove for a bed it is lighted by little round glasses placed in the deck so that to the insider the ceiling is like a small firmament twinkling with astral radiations for tall men nevertheless the place is but ill adapted a sitting or recumbent position being indispensable to an occupancy of the premises yet small low and narrow as the cabin is somehow it affords accommodations to the skipper and his family often i used to watch the tidy good wife seated at the open little scuttle like a woman at a cottage door engaged in knitting socks for her husband or perhaps cutting his hair as he kneeled before her and once while marvelling how a couple like this found room to turn in below i was amazed by a noisy eruption of cherry-cheeked young tars from the scuttle whence they came rolling forth like so many curly spaniels from a kennel upon one occasion i had the curiosity to go on board a salt droger and fall into conversation with its skipper a bachelor who kept house all alone i found him a very sociable comfortable old fellow who had an eye to having things cosy around him it was in the evening and he invited me down into his sanctum to supper and there we sat together like a couple in a box at an oyster cellar he 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 chuckled kneeling down before a fat moist little cask of beer and holding a cocked hat pitcher to the faucet you see jack i keep everything down here and nice times i have by myself just before going to bed it ain't bad to take a nightcap you know eh jack here now smack your lips over that my boy have a pipe but stop let's to supper first so he went to a little locker a fixture against the side and groping in it a while and addressing it with what cheer here what cheer at last produced a loaf a small cheese a bit of ham and a jar of butter and then placing a board on his lap spread the table the pitcher of beer in the centre why that's but a two-legged table said i let's make it four so we divided the burthen and supped merrily together on our knees he was an old ruby of a fellow his cheeks toasted brown and it did my soul good to see the froth of the beer bubbling at his mouth and sparkling on his nut-brown beard he looked so like a great mug of ale that i almost felt like taking him by the neck and pouring him out now jack said he when supper was over now jack my boy do you smoke well then load away and he handed me a sealskin pouch of tobacco and a pipe 
we sat smoking together in this little sea cabinet of his till it began to look much like a state-room in Tophet. and notwithstanding my host's rubicund nose i could hardly see him for the fog he he my boy then said he i don't never have any bugs here i tell you i smokes em all out every night before going to bed and where may you sleep said i looking round and seeing no sign of a bed sleep says he why i sleep in my jacket that's the best counterpane and i use my head for a pillow he he funny ain't it very funny says i have some more ale says he plenty more no more thank you says i i guess i'll go for what with the tobacco smoke and the ale i began to feel like breathing fresh air besides my conscience smote me for thus freely indulging in the pleasures of the table now don't go said he don't go my boy don't go out into the damp take an old christian's advice laying his hand on my shoulder it won't do you see by going out now you'll shake off the ale and get broad awake again but if you stay here you'll soon be dropping off for a nice little nap but notwithstanding these inducements i shook my host's hand and departed there was hardly anything i witnessed in the docks that interested me more than the german immigrants who come on board the large new york ships several days before their sailing to make everything comfortable ere starting old men tottering with age and little infants in arms laughing girls in bright button bodices and astute middle-aged men with pictured pipes in their mouths would be seen mingling together in crowds of five six and seven or eight hundred in one ship every evening these countrymen of luther and melanchthon gathered on the forecastle to sing and pray and it was exalting to listen to their fine ringing anthems reverberating among the crowded shipping and rebounding from the lofty walls of the docks shut your eyes and you would think you were in a cathedral they keep up this custom at sea and every night in the dog watch sing the songs of zion to the roll of the great ocean organ a pious custom of a devout race who thus send over their hallelujahs before them as they hie to the land of the stranger and among these sober germans my country counts the most orderly and valuable of her foreign population it is they who have swelled the census of her northwestern states and transferring their ploughs from the hills of transylvania to the prairies of wisconsin and sowing the wheat of the rhine on the banks of ohio raise the grain that a hundredfold increased may return to their kinsmen in europe there is something in the contemplation of the mode in which america has been settled that in a noble breast should forever extinguish the prejudices of national dislikes settled by the people of all nations all nations may claim her for their own you cannot spill a drop of american blood without spilling the blood of the whole world be he englishman frenchman german dane or scot the european who scoffs at an american calls his own brother raka and stands in danger of the judgment we are not a narrow tribe of men with a bigoted hebrew nationality whose blood has been debased in the attempt to ennoble it by maintaining an exclusive succession among ourselves no our blood is as the flood of the amazon made up of a thousand noble currents all pouring into one we are not a nation 
so much as a world for unless we may claim all the world for our sire like melchisedec we are without father or mother for who was our father and our mother or can we point to any romulus and remus for our founders our ancestry is lost in the universal paternity and caesar and alfred st paul and luther and homer and shakespeare are as much ours as washington who is as much the world's as our own we are the heirs of all time and with all nations we divide our inheritance on this western hemisphere all tribes and people are forming into one federated whole and there is a future which shall see the estranged children of adam restored as to the old hearthstone in eden the other world beyond this which was longed for by the devout before columbus's time was found in the new and the deep sea lead that first struck these soundings brought up the soil of earth's paradise not a paradise then or now but to be made so at god's good pleasure and in the fullness and mellowness of time the seed is sown and the harvest must come and our children's children on the world's jubilee morning shall all go with their sickles to the reaping then shall the curse of babel be revoked a new pentecost come and the language they shall speak shall be the language of britain frenchmen and danes and scots and the dwellers on the shores of the mediterranean and in the regions round about italians and indians and moors there shall appear unto them cloven tongues as of fire chapter thirty four the irrawaddy among the various ships lying in prince's dock none interested me more than the irrawaddy of bombay a country ship which is the name bestowed by europeans upon the large native vessels of india forty years ago these merchantmen were nearly the largest in the world and they still exceed the generality they are built of the celebrated teak oak the oak of the east or in eastern phrase the king of the oaks the irrawaddy had just arrived from hindostan with a cargo of cotton she was manned by forty or fifty lascars the native seamen of india who seemed to be immediately governed by a countryman of theirs of a higher caste while his inferiors went about in strips of white linen this dignitary was arrayed in a red army coat brilliant with gold lace a cocked hat and drawn sword but the general effect was quite spoiled by his bare feet in discharging the cargo his business seemed to consist in flagellating the crew with the flat of his sabre an exercise in which long practice had made him exceedingly expert the poor fellows jumped away with the tackle rope elastic as cats one sunday i went aboard of the irrawaddy when this oriental usher accosted me at the gangway with his sword at my throat i gently pushed it aside making a sign expressive of the pacific character of my motives in paying a visit to the ship whereupon he very considerately let me pass i thought i was in pegu so strangely woody was the smell of the dark-coloured timbers whose odour was heightened by the rigging of kayar or coconut fibre the lascars were on the forecastle deck among them were malays marathas burmese siamese and singalese they were seated round kids full of rice from which according to their invariable custom they helped themselves with one hand the other being reserved for quite another purpose 
They were chattering like magpies in Hindustani, but I found that several of them could also speak very good English. They were a small-limbed, wiry, tawny set, and I was informed made excellent seamen, though ill-adapted to stand the hardships of northern voyaging. They told me that seven of their number had died on the passage from Bombay, two or three after crossing the Tropic of Cancer, and the rest met their fate in the channel, where the ship had been tossed about in violent seas, attended with cold rains, peculiar to that vicinity. Two more had been lost overboard from the flying jib-boom. I was condoling with a young English cabin-boy on board, upon the loss of these poor fellows, when he said it was their own fault. They would never wear monkey-jackets, but clung to their thin India robes, even in the bitterest weather. He talked about them much as a farmer would about the loss of so many sheep by the murrain. The captain of the vessel was an Englishman, as were also the three mates, master and boatswain. These officers lived astern in the cabin, where every Sunday they read the Church of England's prayers, while the heathen at the other end of the ship were left to their false gods and idols. And thus, with Christianity on the quarter-deck and paganism on the forecastle, the Irrawaddy ploughed the sea. As if to symbolize this state of things, the fancy piece astern comprised, among numerous other carved decorations, a cross and a mitre, while forward, on the bows, was a sort of devil for a figurehead, a dragon-shaped creature with a fiery red mouth and a switchy-looking tail. After her cargo was discharged, which was done to the sound of flutes and soft recorders, something as work is done in the navy to the music of the boatswain's pipe, the Laskers were set to stripping the ship, that is, to sending down all her spars and ropes. At this time she lay alongside of us, and the babble on board almost drowned our own voices. In nothing but their girdles the Laskers hopped about aloft, chattering like so many monkeys, but nevertheless showing much dexterity and seamanship in their manner of doing their work. Every Sunday, crowds of well-dressed people came down to the dock to see this singular ship. Many of them perched themselves in the shrouds of the neighboring craft, much to the wrath of Captain Riga, who left strict orders with our old shipkeeper to drive all strangers out of the Highlanders' rigging. It was amusing at these times to watch the old women with umbrellas who stood on the quay staring at the Laskers, even when they desired to be private. These inquisitive old ladies seemed to regard the strange sailors as a species of wild animal whom they might gaze at with as much impunity as at leopards in the zoological gardens one night i was returning to the ship when just as i was passing through the dock gate i noticed a white figure squatting against the wall outside it proved to be one of the laskers who was smoking as the regulations of the docks prohibit his indulging this luxury on board his vessel Struck with the curious fashion of his pipe and the odor from it, I inquired what he was smoking. He replied, joggery, which is a species of weed used in place of tobacco. Finding that he spoke good English and was quite communicative, like most smokers, I sat down by Dadabdulman's, as he called himself, and we fell into conversation. So instructive was his discourse that when we parted, I had considerably added to my stock of knowledge. Indeed, it is a godsend to fall in with a fellow like this. He knows things you never dreamed of. 
his experiences are like a man from the moon wholly strange a new revelation if you want to learn romance or gain an insight into things quaint curious and marvelous drop your books of travel and take a stroll along the docks of a great commercial port ten to one you will encounter crusoe himself among the crowds of mariners from all parts of the globe but this is no place for making mention of all the subjects upon which i and my lasker friend mostly discoursed i will only try to give his account of the teak wood and kayer rope concerning which things i was curious and sought information the sagoon as he called the tree which produces the teak grows in its greatest excellence among the mountains of malabar whence large quantities are sent to bombay for shipbuilding he also spoke of another kind of wood the scissor which supplies most of the shen logs or knees and crooked timbers in the country ships the sagoon grows to an immense size sometimes there is fifty feet of trunk three feet through before a single bough is put forth its leaves are very large and to convey some idea of them my lasker likened them to elephants ears he said a purple dye was extracted from them for the purpose of staining cottons and silks the wood is specifically heavier than water it is easily worked and extremely strong and durable but its chief merit lies in resisting the action of the salt water and the attacks of insects which resistance is caused by its containing a resinous oil called puna to my surprise he informed me that the irrawaddy was wholly built by the native shipwrights of india who he modestly asserted surpassed the european artisans the rigging also was of native manufacture as the kayar of which it is composed is now getting into use both in england and america as well for ropes and rigging as for mats and rugs my lasker friend's account of it joined to my own observations may not be uninteresting in india it is prepared very much in the same way as in polynesia the coconut is gathered while the husk is still green and but partially ripe and this husk is removed by striking the nut forcibly with both hands upon a sharp pointed stake planted uprightly in the ground in this way a boy will strip nearly fifteen hundred in a day but the kayar is not made from the husk as might be supposed but from the rind of the nut which after being long soaked in water is beaten with mallets and rubbed together into fibres after this being dried in the sun you may spin it just like hemp or any similar substance the fibre thus produced makes very strong and durable ropes extremely well adapted from their lightness and durability for the running rigging of a ship while the same causes united with its great strength and buoyancy render it very suitable for large cables and hawsers but the elasticity of the kayar ill fits it for the shrouds and standing rigging of a ship which require to be comparatively firm hence as the irrawaddy's shrouds were all of this substance the lasker told me they were continually setting up or slacking off her standing rigging according as the weather was cold or warm and the loss of a foretop mast between the tropics in a squall he attributed to this circumstance after a stay of about two weeks the irrawaddy had her heavy indian spars replaced with canadian pine and her kayar shrouds with hempen ones she then mustered her pagans and hoisted sail for london chapter thirty five galliots 
Cost of Guinea Men, and Floating Chapel. Another very curious craft often seen in the Liverpool docks is the Dutch Galliot, an old-fashioned-looking gentleman with hollow waist, high prow and stern, and which, seen lying among crowds of tight Yankee traders and pert French brigantines, always reminded me of a cocked hat among modish beavers. The construction of the Galliot has not altered for centuries, and the northern European nations, Danes and Dutch, still sailed the salt seas in this flat-bottomed salt-cellar of a ship, although, in addition to these, they have vessels of a more modern kind. They seldom paint the galliot, but scrape and varnish all its planks and spars, so that all over it resembles the bright side or polished streak, usually banding round an American ship. Some of them are kept scrupulously neat and clean, and remind one of a well-scrubbed wooden platter, or an old oak table, upon which much wax and elbow vigor has been expended. Before the wind, they sail well, but on a bowline, owing to their broad hulls and flat bottoms, they make leeway at a sad rate. Every day some strange vessel entered Prince's dock, and hardly would I gaze my fill at some outlandish craft from Surratt or the Levant, ere a still more outlandish one would absorb my attention. Among others, I remember, was a little brig from the coast of Guinea. In appearance, she was the ideal of a slaver, low, black, clipper built about the bows, and her decks in a state of most piratical disorder. She carried a long, rusty gun on a swivel amidships, and that gun was a curiosity in itself. It must have been some old veteran, condemned by the government, and sold for anything it would fetch. It was an antique, covered with half-effaced inscriptions, crowns, anchors, eagles, and it had two handles near the trunnions, like those of a tureen. The knob on the breech was fashioned into a dolphin's head, and by a comical conceit the touch-hole formed the orifice of a human ear, and a stout tympanum it must have had, to have withstood the concussions it had heard. The brig, heavily loaded, lay between two large ships in ballast, so that its deck was at least twenty feet below those of its neighbors. Thus shut in, its hatchways looked like the entrance to deep vaults or mines, especially as her men were wheeling out of her hold some kind of ore, which might have been gold ore, so scrupulous were they in evening the bushel measures, in which they transferred it to the quay. And so particular was the captain, a dark-skinned whiskerando in a Maltese cap and tassel, in standing over the sailors with his pencil and memorandum book in hand. The crew were a buccaneering-looking set, with hairy chests, purple shirts, and arms wildly tattooed. The mate had a wooden leg, and hobbled about with a crooked cane like a spiral staircase. There was a deal of swearing on board of this craft, which was rendered the more reprehensible when she came to moor alongside the floating chapel. This was the hull of an old sloop of war, which had been converted into a mariner's church. A house had been built upon it, and a steeple took the place of a mast. There was a little balcony near the base of the steeple, some twenty feet from the water, where, on weekdays, I used to see an old pensioner of a tar sitting on a camp-stool reading his Bible. On Sundays he hoisted the Bethel flag, and, like the musine or crier of prayers on top of a Turkish mosque, 
would call the strolling sailors to their devotions, not officially, but on his own account, conjuring them not to make fools of themselves, but muster round the pulpit, as they did about the capstan on a man of war. This old worthy was the sexton. I attended the chapel several times, and found there a very orderly but small congregation. The first time I went, the chaplain was discoursing on future punishments and making allusions to the Tartarian lake, which, coupled with the pitchy smell of the old hull, summoned up the most forcible image of the thing which I ever experienced. The floating chapels which are to be found in some of the docks form one of the means which have been tried to induce the seamen visiting Liverpool to turn their thoughts towards serious things. But as very few of them ever think of entering these chapels, though they might pass them twenty times in the day, some of the clergy of a Sunday address them in the open air, from the corners of the quays, or wherever they can produce an audience. Whenever in my Sunday strolls I caught sight of one of these congregations, I always made a point of joining it, and would find myself surrounded by a motley crowd of seamen from all quarters of the globe, and women, and lumpers, and dock laborers of all sorts. Frequently the clergyman would be standing upon an old cask, arrayed in full canonicals, as a divine of the Church of England. Never have I heard religious discourses better adapted to an audience of men who, like sailors, are chiefly, if not only, to be moved by the plainest of precepts and demonstrations of the misery of sin as conclusive and undeniable as those of Euclid. No more rhetoric avails with such men. Fine periods are vanity. You cannot touch them with tropes. They need to be pressed home by plain facts and such was generally the mode in which they were addressed by the clergy in question, who, taking familiar themes for their discourses, which were leveled right at the wants of their auditors, always succeeded in fastening their attention. In particular, the two great vices to which sailors are most addicted, and which they practice to the ruin of both body and soul, these things were the most enlarged upon, and several times on the docks, I have seen a robed clergyman addressing a large audience of women collected from the notorious lanes and alleys in the neighborhood. Is not this as it ought to be, since the true calling of the reverend clergy is like their divine masters, not to bring the righteous, but sinners to repentance? Did some of them leave the converted and comfortable congregations before whom they have ministered year after year, and plunge at once, like St. Paul, into the infected centers and hearts of vice? Then, indeed, would they find a strong enemy to cope with, and a victory gained over him would entitle them to a conqueror's wreath. Better to save one sinner from an obvious vice that is destroying him than to indoctrinate ten thousand saints and as from every corner in catholic towns the shrines of holy mary and the child jesus perpetually remind the commonest wayfarer of his heaven even so should protestant pulpits be founded in the market-places and at street corners where the men of god might be heard by all of his children chapter thirty six the old church of st nicholas and the dead house the floating chapel recalls to mind the old church well known to the seamen of many generations who have visited Liverpool. It stands very near the docks, a venerable mass of brownstone, and by the townspeople is called the Church of St. Nicholas. 
i believe it is the best preserved piece of antiquity in all liverpool before the town rose to any importance it was the only place of worship on that side of the mersey and under the adjoining parish of walton was a chapel of ease though from the straight-backed pews there could have been but little comfort taken in it in old times there stood in front of the church a statue of st nicholas the patron of mariners to which all pious sailors made offerings to induce his saintship to grant them short and prosperous voyages in the tower is a fine chime of bells and i well remember my delight at first hearing them on the first sunday morning after our arrival in the dock it seemed to carry an admonition in it something like the premonition conveyed to young whittington by bow bells wellingborough wellingborough you must not forget to go to church wellingborough don't forget wellingborough wellingborough don't forget thirty or forty years ago these bells were rung upon the arrival of every liverpool ship from a foreign voyage how forcibly does this illustrate the increase of the commerce of the town were the same custom now observed the bells would seldom have a chance to cease what seemed the most remarkable about this venerable old church and what seemed the most barbarous and grated upon the veneration with which i regarded this time-hallowed structure was the condition of the graveyard surrounding it from its close vicinity to the haunts of the swarms of laborers about the docks it is crossed and recrossed by thoroughfares in all directions and the tombstones not being erect but horizontal indeed they form a complete flagging to the spot multitudes are constantly walking over the dead their heels erasing the death's heads and crossbones the last mementos of the departed at noon when the lumpers employed in loading and unloading the shipping retire for an hour to snatch a dinner many of them resort to the graveyard and seating themselves upon a tombstone use the adjoining one for a table often i saw men stretched out in a drunken sleep upon these slabs and once removing a fellow's arm read the following inscription which in a manner was true to the life if not to the death here lieth ye body of tobias drinker for two memorable circumstances connected with this church i am indebted to my excellent friend morocco who tells me that in fifteen eighty eight the earl of derby coming to his residence and waiting for a passage to the isle of man the corporation erected and adorned a sumptuous stall in the church for his reception and moreover that in the time of cromwell's wars when the place was taken by that mad nephew of king charles prince rupert he converted the old church into a military prison and stable when no doubt another sumptuous stall was erected for the benefit of the steed of some noble cavalry officer in the basement of the church is a dead house like the morgue in paris where the bodies of the drowned are exposed until claimed by their friends or till buried at the public charge from the multitudes employed about the shipping this dead house has always more or less occupants whenever i passed up chapel street i used to see a crowd gazing through the grim iron grating of the door upon the faces of the drowned within and once when the door was opened i saw a sailor stretched out stark and stiff with the sleeve of his frock rolled up and showing his name and date of birth tattooed upon his arm it was a sight full of suggestions he seemed his own headstone 
I was told that standing rewards are offered for the recovery of persons falling into the docks. So much if restored to life, and a less amount if irrevocably drowned. Lured by this, several horrid old men and women are constantly prying about the docks, searching after bodies. I observed them principally early in the morning, when they issued from their dens on the same principle that the rag-rakers and rubbish-pickers in the streets sally out bright and early for then the night-harvest has ripened. There seems to be no calamity overtaking man that cannot be rendered mercantable. Undertakers, sextons, tomb-makers, and hearse-drivers get their living from the dead, and in times of plague most thrive. And these miserable old men and women hunted after corpses to keep from going to the churchyard themselves, for they were the most wretched of starvelings. CHAPTER Thirty Seven, WHAT REDBURN SAW IN LANCELOT'S HAY The dead house reminds me of other sad things, for in the vicinity of the docks are many very painful sights. In going to our boarding-house, the sign of the Baltimore Clipper, I generally passed through a narrow street called Lancelot's Hay, lined with dingy, prison-like cotton warehouses. In this street, or rather alley, you seldom see any one but a truckman, or some solitary old warehouse-keeper, haunting his smoky den like a ghost. Once, passing through this place, I heard a feeble wail, which seemed to come out of the earth. It was but a strip of crooked sidewalk where I stood. The dingy wall was on every side converting the midday into twilight, and not a soul was in sight. I started, and could almost have run, when I heard that dismal sound. It seemed the low, hopeless, endless wail of someone forever lost. At last I advanced to an opening which communicated downward with deep tiers of cellars beneath a crumbling old warehouse. And there, some fifteen feet below the walk, crouching in nameless squalor, with her head bowed over, was the figure of what had been a woman. Her blue arms folded to her livid bosom two shrunken things like children that leaned toward her, one on each side. At first I knew not whether they were alive or dead. They made no sign. They did not move or stir, but from the vault came that soul-sickening wail. I made a noise with my foot, which in the silence echoed far and near. But there was no response. Louder still, when one of the children lifted its head and cast upward a faint glance, then closed its eyes and lay motionless. The woman also now gazed up and perceived me, but let fall her eye again. They were dumb and next to dead with want. How they had crawled into that den I could not tell. But there they had crawled to die. At that moment I never thought of relieving them, for death was so stamped in their glazed and unimploring eyes that I almost regarded them as already no more. I stood looking down on them while my whole soul swelled within me, and I asked myself what right had anybody in the wide world to smile and be glad when sights like this were to be seen. It was enough to turn the heart to gall, and make a man-hater of a Howard. For who were these ghosts that I saw? Were they not human beings? A woman and two girls, with eyes and lips and ears like any queen? with hearts which, though they did not bound with blood, yet beat with a dull, dead ache that was their life. 
at last i walked on toward an open lot in the alley hoping to meet there some ragged old women whom i had daily noticed groping amid foul rubbish for little particles of dirty cotton which they washed out and sold for a trifle i found them and accosting one i asked if she knew of the persons i had just left she replied that she did not nor did she want to i then asked another a miserable toothless old woman with a tattered strip of coarse baling stuff round her body looking at me for an instant she resumed her raking in the rubbish and said that she knew who it was that i spoke of but that she had no time to attend to beggars and their brats accosting still another who seemed to know my errand i asked if there was no place to which the woman could be taken yes she replied to the churchyard i said she was alive and not dead then she'll never die was the rejoinder she's been down there these three days with nothing to eat that i know myself she deserves it said an old hag who was just placing on her crooked shoulders her bag of pickings and who was turning to totter off that betsy jennings deserves it was she ever married tell me that leaving lancelot's hay i turned into a more frequented street and soon meeting a policeman told him of the condition of the woman and the girls it's none of my business jack said he i don't belong to that street who does then i don't know but what business is it of yours are you not a yankee yes said i but come i will help you remove that woman if you say so there now jack go on board your ship and stick to it and leave these matters to the town i accosted two more policemen with no better success they would not even go with me to the place the truth was it was out of the way in a silent secluded spot and the misery of the three outcasts hiding away in the ground did not obtrude upon any one returning to them i again stamped to attract their attention but this time none of the three looked up or even stirred while i yet stood irresolute a voice called to me from a high iron-shuttered window in a loft over the way and asked what i was about i beckoned to the man a sort of porter to come down which he did when i pointed down into the vault well said he what of it can't we get them out said i haven't you some place in your warehouse where you can put them have you nothing for them to eat you're crazy boy said he do you suppose that parkins and wood want their warehouse turned into a hospital i then went to my boarding-house and told handsome mary of what i had seen asking her if she could not do something to get the woman and girls removed or if she could not do that let me have some food for them but though a kind person in the main mary replied that she gave away enough to beggars in her own street which was true enough without looking after the whole neighborhood going into the kitchen i accosted the cook a little shriveled-up old welshwoman with a saucy tongue whom the sailors called brandy nan and begged her to give me some cold victuals if she had nothing better to take to the vault but she broke out in a storm of swearing at the miserable occupants of the vault and refused i then stepped into the room where our dinner was being spread and waiting till the girl had gone out i snatched some bread and cheese from a stand and thrusting it into the bosom of my frock left the house 
Hurrying to the lane, I dropped the food down into the vault. One of the girls caught at it convulsively, but fell back, apparently fainting. The sister pushed the other's arm aside and took the bread in her hand, but with a weak, uncertain grasp like an infant's. She placed it to her mouth, but letting it fall again, murmuring faintly something like, Water. The woman did not stir. Her head was bowed over, just as I had first seen her. Seeing how it was, I ran down toward the docks to a mean little sailor tavern, and begged for a pitcher. But the cross old man who kept it refused, unless I would pay for it. But I had no money. So, as my boarding-house was some way off, and it would be lost time to run to the ship for my big iron pot, under the impulse of the moment, I hurried to one of the boodle hydrants, which I remembered having seen running near the scene of a still smouldering fire in an old rag-house, and taking off a new tarpaulin hat which had been loaned me that day, filled it with water. With this I returned to Lancelot's hay, and with considerable difficulty, like getting down into a well, I contrived to descend with it into the vault, where there was hardly space enough left to let me stand. The two girls drank out of the hat together, looking up at me with an unalterable, idiotic expression that almost made me faint. The woman spoke not a word, and did not stir. While the girls were breaking and eating the bread, I tried to lift the woman's head, but, feeble as she was, she seemed bent upon holding it down. Observing her arms still clasped upon her bosom, and that something seemed hidden under the rags there, a thought crossed my mind which impelled me forcibly to withdraw her hands for a moment, when I caught a glimpse of a meagre little babe, the lower part of its body thrust into an old bonnet. Its face was dazzlingly white, even in its squalor, but the closed eyes looked like balls of indigo. It must have been dead some hours. The woman, refusing to speak, eat or drink, I asked one of the girls who they were and where they lived, but she only stared vacantly, muttering something that could not be understood. The air of the place was now getting too much for me, but I stood deliberating a moment whether it was possible for me to drag them out of the vault. But if I did, what then? They would only perish in the street, and here they were at least protected from the rain, and more than that, might die in seclusion. I crawled up into the street and looking down upon them again almost repented that i had brought them any food for it would only tend to prolong their misery without hope of any permanent relief for die they must very soon they were too far gone for any medicine to help them i hardly know whether i ought to confess another thing that occurred to me as i stood there but it was this i felt an almost irresistible impulse to do them the last mercy of in some way putting an end to their horrible lives. And I should almost have done so, I think, had I not been deterred by thoughts of the law. For I well knew that the law, which would let them perish of themselves without giving them one cup of water, would spend a thousand pounds, if necessary, in convicting him who should so much as offer to relieve them from their miserable existence. The next day, and the next, I passed the vault three times, and still met the same sight, the girls leaning up against the woman on each side, and the woman with her arms still folding the babe, and her head bowed. 
the first evening i did not see the bread that i had dropped down in the morning but the second evening the bread i had dropped that morning remained untouched on the third morning the smell that came from the vault was such that i accosted the same policeman i had accosted before who was patrolling the same street and told him that the persons i had spoken to him about were dead and he had better have them removed he looked as if he did not believe me and added that it was not his street when i arrived at the docks on my way to the ship i entered the guard-house within the walls and asked for one of the captains to whom i told the story but from what he said was led to infer that the dock police was distinct from that of the town and this was not the right place to lodge my information i could do no more that morning being obliged to repair to the ship but at twelve o'clock when i went to dinner i hurried into lancelot's hay when i found that the vault was empty in place of the woman and children a heap of quicklime was glistening i could not learn who had taken them away or whither they had gone but my prayer was answered they were dead departed and at peace but again i looked down into the vault and in fancy beheld the pale shrunken forms still crouching there ah what are our creeds and how do we hope to be saved tell me o bible that story of lazarus again that i may find comfort in my heart for the poor and forlorn surrounded as we are by the wants and woes of our fellow-men and yet given to follow our own pleasures regardless of their pains are we not like people sitting up with a corpse and making merry in the house of the dead end of section eight recording by james k white chula vista